As a pastoral counselor, there are two things that most people come into my office um, with their complaint, and that is they're either having a real difficult time forming meaningful, healthy relationships, and or they're suffering from some one or many forms of addiction, and they are Christians. They are professing Christians who just can't seem to form and maintain healthy relationships with a spouse or with their children or with people in the workplace, uh, even social uh, gatherings and friendships. And oftentimes the pain, the chaos, and the misery of those relationship patterns are so intense that they have turned to a avoidance strategy of some form of addiction. And yet, they are professing Christians. And the incongruency of that reality, that they are professing Christians and living with such brokenness in their relationships and in their uh, use of substances or other process addictions, that it is tearing them apart. They just can't quite understand why, if they are in Christ, why they are suffering such dreaded um, patterns in their life. So, in the next several episodes, I want to talk with you about how the gospel produces healthy, loving relationships. That is the essence of the gospel. We are to understand the gospel as reconciling us with our Heavenly Father, with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we have fellowship restored with God. And we have the ability, not just the desire, but the ability, as we are led by the Spirit, to form meaningful, healthy, loving relationships. Now, that is not something in a broken world that is common. But as you will hear, to me, I have to insist, because the scripture insists, that the formation of healthy, loving, meaningful relationships in Christ is the primary evidence that we are in Christ. There is no such thing, biblically, as us being able to love God and hate each other. We know for certain in 1 John, he tells us that those who say that they love God and hate their brother, they are a liar, and the truth is not in them. So, while our relationships with the triune God, our Heavenly Father, our elder brother, Jesus Christ, and our fellowship with the Spirit is distinct from our relationships with one another, they are inseparable. So, my concern is to address this chasm between our profession in Christ and our ability to form and maintain loving, healthy relationships. Anybody who's ever been through the pain of a divorce would not recommend it. Anybody who's ever lost a child, uh, either to death or to alienation, will attest to the pain that that creates. Anybody has, who has ever found themselves given over to some form of substance abuse or process addiction will understand and testify to the misery it produces. 
So we want to be careful to look at this from a genuine perspective of truth. So to do that, we're going to have to ask ourselves if we understand the truth. If the truth actually does set us free, and we're not free, then what is our understanding of the truth? We have to back this up. <clears throat> Excuse me, until we can understand what it is that we're lacking. Where did we go wrong? Where have we come up short? So today, I just want to do an introduction, just an overview of what this series is going to entail. Let me begin first with my thesis or my opening statement. And that is this It is God's eternal purpose to create for his glory a people who display his character in their interpersonal relationships. Let me say that again. It is God's eternal purpose to create for his glory a people who display his character in their interpersonal relationships. Now, it would be understandable for you to protest. You might say something like, Have you seen the condition of the church these days, Rick? Are you aware of the greed, the immorality, the abuse, and the criminal behavior at work? Are you aware that addiction, domestic violence are as present among Christians as among unbelievers? And tragically, sadly, I would have to concede your point. The data supporting your protest is too clear and plentiful not to concede that point. Tragically, the church in America does mirror the American culture. Yet that is not the fault of the gospel or of God's purpose for the church. Rather, it is the fault of those who have hijacked the gospel to use it for their own personal interests. Such a thing is criminal. But the truth of the gospel remains, and God's purpose stands, and is even now being worked out among believers. It's never quite as black and white, or as dark as it seems. It's dark, don't get me wrong. But God has always reserved and preserved a remnant. We just want to be careful to make a proclamation of truth to edify and build up and encourage those whom God has made himself known to in Christ. His people, his elect, his remnant. No one can look out over the landscape of American Christianity and believe that this is of God. It would be a bad joke. But that doesn't mean that the little flock of Christ doesn't exist. And I hope that at the end of this series, if you are not part of that flock, that you will become so. And if you are, you have learned something that can help you step away from old patterns of thinking and believing and feeling that have sabotaged your ability to form and maintain healthy relationships. So let me start with point one, and that is, it is my conviction that the gospel of Christ, when presented in a biblical, 
rational manner produces hearts of fire in loving, healthy relationships. That's why I'm a pastoral counselor. I also believe the gospel is sufficient to address the whole person, spirit, mind, and body. For too long now, Christian caregivers have operated with a pseudo-gnostic dualism, a dualism that addresses the spiritual needs of a believer, but leave the material and relational needs unmet. But one of the reasons I'm a pastoral counselor, and not only a therapist, is that the gospel addresses the whole person. And secular psychology and philosophy does not do that. And sadly, most of what calls itself Christianity does not do that either. You see, the gospel redeems our entire humanity. And that includes, by the way, our developmental years. Perhaps some of you have suffered childhood trauma, and you've grown weary of standard psychotherapy and pharmacology. Well, there's hope in the gospel. But we must be clear as to what we mean by the gospel. The present crisis is rooted not in a failure of the gospel, but in the failure of men to teach the gospel as set forth in Scripture alone. They have instead treated the gospel as if it were their own personal possession and applied business models to advance their own personal interests, increase their profits by what they, by calling what they preach, quote, the gospel, end quote, when it is not. How can you have done anything other than suffer under such people? Point two. The first thing we must recover, therefore, is our understanding of the nature of truth. Truth is rational, meaning it appeals first to the mind, which is the gateway to the heart. Now, it is true one cannot be saved by a mere cognitive approach to the truth. But no one will be saved apart from the truth entering first through the mind. Indeed, the battle is always for the Christian mind. For instance, in response to the false teachers, Paul told the Corinthians he was concerned that their, quote, minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 11.3 It was because the Christians in Rome obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which they had given themselves over, the apostolic teaching, that we learned that they were freed from sin and came, became, quote, slaves of righteousness. That's Romans 6, 16-18. So we have this pattern throughout the apostolic writings that the truth of the gospel can be verified. It can be known. It is rational. It is cognitive. It comes through the mind on its way to the heart. And this is precisely what is needed in the present crisis, a rational, biblical approach to the pattern of teaching that not only frees us from sin, but also makes us slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness that 
are able to form and maintain right relationships with one another. So the point I am stressing here is that godly living and forming healthy relationships is the primary evidence that one is in possession of biblical truth. Let me see that again. The point I am stressing here is that godly living and formal, excuse me, forming healthy relationships is the primary evidence one is in possession of biblical truth. Now, the reverse implication is true as well, isn't it? That ungodly living and chaos, pain, and misery in our relationships is a serious signpost pointing us to the fact that we are not in possession of biblical truth. We may be professing Christians. We may be going to church. We may be having experiences. We may be baptized. We may be second or third or fourth generation within a certain denomination or local church. But it's our life and our lifestyles that evidence whether or not we are in possession of biblical truth. So the great challenge in our day is the present age of postmodern irrationality. That's the next thing I want to talk with you about. Postmodern irrationality is the great enemy of the rational biblical gospel, and it is the dominant philosophy within American culture right now. When I was in graduate school studying counseling psychology, the dominant paradigm for that school was postmodernism. Now, let me just explain to you. Let's look at what Wikipedia even, what they say and how they define postmodernism. Postmodernism is an intellectual stance or mode of discourse characterized by skepticism. Skepticism toward the grand narratives. Rejection of epistemic certainty or the stability of meaning, sensitivity and sensitivity to the role of ideology in maintaining political power. End quote. In other words, to put it in English, <laughs> postmodernism is an intellectual stance of skepticism. It rejects that there is any grand narrative to which we can subscribe. It rejects any notion of certainty, transcendent truth, objective truth. It rejects any stability of meaning, meaning that what was true a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago is still true today. They reject that notion. And here's the frightening reality of this. To reject meaning, to say there is no objective truth, there is no objective meaning, is to lose our way, and to lose our way is to go insane. Now, if you're paying attention, if you turn on the local cable news, any channel will do, and watch it for 15 or 20 minutes, you get a good sense as to the world has gone insane. And American culture is going right along with it. Because without meaning, without objective meaning, if my truth is your truth and your truth is my truth, and we don't care about whose truth is what, if my own truth matters and your own truth matters and we neither one of us really know the truth, 
and we just make it up as we go along, then we're on the path to insanity, chaos, anarchy. So in graduate school, as I wrote and spoke of certainty and transcendent truth as coming through the mind and entering the heart as it's set forth in scripture, I was labeled simple-minded, narrow. I was told I was advancing antiquated views, even though I was attending a Christian seminary. For postmodern people, truth is self-defined. That's what I learned. They believed that truth was self-defined. A tree is a tree because I say it's a tree, not because it is a tree. A chair is a chair because I say it's a chair, not because it actually is a chair. Truth is what one wants it to be. And postmodernism is therefore the enemy of the rational biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're up against. We're up against a whole cultural philosophy. And by the way, what follows postmodernism in the church and in society? The Lutheran scholar Frederick Bau, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, B-A-U-E, answers that question with this, quote, What follows postmodernism in church and society is a Western world civilization that is innately religious but hostile to Christianity. Or worse, a dominant but false church that brings all of its forces to bear against the truth of God's word. End quote. A dominant but false church that brings all of its forces to bear against the truth of God's word. End quote. We just passed through the Easter season. And I was struck and grieved so deeply by some of the television and newspaper ads I saw promoting Easter Sunday services. And some of the pure, unmitigated, unadulterated business model marketing that was going on. This is what he meant, a false church that brings all of his forces to bear against the truth of God's word. Because not one of these churches was inviting you to come to hear the word of God. They were inviting you to come and have an experience. Leave your brains at the door. Come have an experience. We are providing the best experience this year. You won't find a better experience anywhere than if you come to our church. We've got fun and games for the kids, Easter egg hunt great music. One church here in the Seattle area even promised to have Pastor Benny Hinn come by for the evening service for a miracle deliverance service. A false church that brings forth all of its forces to bear against the truth of God's word. Looks like Christianity, talks like Christianity, uses Christian symbols, uses Christian terminologies, but it's the Antichrist. That there's no other way around it. Any approach to the gospel that bypasses the intellect and pretends to originate within the individual experience alone is working against the gospel of Christ. Isn't that the very definition of Antichrist? Indeed, it is an anti-gospel that results in chaos, pain, and misery in our relationships with one another. It can do no other. 
A purely subjective, postmodern approach to Jesus himself is growing in popularity. And a postmodern approach to Jesus himself cannot but manufacture a false image of Jesus. A non-saving alternative image of Jesus. And that will show up, beloved, in our homes, our families, our relationships with one another. Our relationships with each other in the church. Listen carefully, please, to what Francis Schaeffer wrote in 1968. Quote, I have come to the point where, when I hear the word Jesus, which means so much to me because of the person of the historic Jesus and his work, that I listen carefully because I have with sorrow become more afraid of the word Jesus than almost any other word in the modern world. The word is used as a contentless banner, and our generation is invited to follow it. But there is no rational scriptural content by which to test it. And thus the word is being used to teach the very opposite things from those which Jesus taught. We must never forget that the great enemy who is coming is the Antichrist. He is not anti-non-Christ. He is anti-Christ. Increasingly, over the last few years, the word Jesus, separated from the content of the scriptures, has become the enemy of the Jesus of history. The Jesus who died and rose again and who is coming again and who is the eternal Son of God. So let us take care, says Schaefer, if evangelical Christians begin to slip into a dichotomy to separate an encounter with Jesus from content, from the content of the scriptures, including the discussable and the verifiable, we shall, without intending to, be throwing ourselves and the next generation into the millstream of the modern system. This system surrounds us as an almost monolithic consensus. End quote. Schaefer wrote those words over 50 years ago, and they're even more true today. The reason we are having such difficulty forming and maintaining healthy, loving relationships within Christianity is because the false images of Jesus and false gospels are become prevalent. And they cannot help us do anything but live in chaos, pain, and misery. Oh, they give us great experiences. They look good. They sound good. You go to a mega church on Sunday morning, it looks like the happening place to be. This is, boy, if you really want to have an experience with Jesus, here's the place to be. But when the dust settles, people lay their head on the pillow at night. It isn't working for them. False images of Jesus appear everywhere, including in our churches, in sermons, Christian publications, movies, art, and yes, in Christian counseling offices. The popular series, quote, The Chosen, end quote, is the latest example of this false alternative Jesus. And my, how people love it. 
My, how people are thronging to watch it. My, how they are proclaiming how wonderful it is. And how they've come to love Jesus by watching The Chosen. But nobody or few are asking, which Jesus are you talking about? And then there are movies like Jesus Revolution. With, by the way, the same actor who plays Jesus in, quote, The Chosen, now also playing the controversial Jesus movement leader, Lonnie Frisbee. And there's a number of other religious films slated for release. The point here is that without a rational, cognitive approach to the truth, without the exercise of critical thought, the minds and hearts of believers and unbelievers alike are led captive, seduced by worldly interests, and in the end, fit only for destruction. Now, why is this? Let me just remind you, it's because the postmodern mind is opposed to saving truth. That is to say, rational, biblical truth, which transforms the heart having come first through the mind. We have undisciplined, unfit minds, which is really interesting, because in Romans 1.28 we read, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. End quote. That's Romans 1, 28 through 32. That's the state of humanity. It always has been, it is now, and it's only going to get worse. So, the Bible is literature, inspired literature to be sure, and it is meant to appeal to the intellect before it gets to the heart. Nowhere does the Bible represent faith as a blind leap into the darkness. Nowhere does the Bible call a person to crucify their intellect in order to follow Christ. On the contrary, the Bible insists that we know what we believe and why we believe it. The reason people are falling all over themselves to watch movies like the and rave about The Chosen is because they don't think. They don't think about who Jesus is. They want an experience of who Jesus is apart from thinking. Now, experience is important. I'm all for experience. Without experience, we're something less than human. But experience alone, without truth, is dangerous. So what I'm saying is to avoid becoming conformed to a lost and dying world and thrust into hell along with it, the professing Christian's character must be transformed by the renewing of their mind. 
It is only by this means that we may approve, quote, approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect, end quote. Romans 12, 1 through 2. And by the way, in Romans 12, verse 3, the apostle goes on to say, we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. The apostle adds, but we are to think. To think is to have sound thinking, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Thinking and faith, while distinct, are nonetheless inseparable in the biblical witness. Well, why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because by all measures, the church has become so over-identified with the culture as to be virtually be indistinguishable from the culture. And this is most evident in how Christians conduct themselves within their interpersonal relationships. When you have waiting rooms, a fill of attorneys' offices, divorce attorneys, filled with both unbelieving and believing couples, something has gone awry. Paul often wrote of how he rejoiced to hear of a Christian community's faith in Jesus Christ and their love for the saints. It was indistinguishable. If you had one, you had the other. Ephesians 1.15, Colossians 1.4. To have faith in Jesus Christ is to have love for the saints. The loss of the gospel, however, means the loss of power. The power to produce godly, Christ-like character. And with that loss, all that is left is a false church maintaining only an appearance of Christian religion that cannot help you form meaningful, healthy, loving relationships within your family, with your friendships, with people at work, and be of a help in, in an uh, asset to the gospel. So we live in a time in which the power of godliness has been repudiated while maintaining the appearance of religion. The result is that interpersonal relationships in the churches look more and more like a spiritually and morally bankrupt culture. So let me close by restating my opening sentence. It is God's eternal purpose to create a people for His glory that reflect his character and their relationships with one another. Thanks be to God, that purpose still stands and is indeed being worked out today. It doesn't grab the headlines. Probably won't be on the stage at most mega churches this Sunday. Probably won't be able to hear it from your favorite celebrity preacher. But that's God's purpose. And it is my great conviction that the gospel, when presented in a rational, biblical manner, is the means by which God regenerates hearts and renews minds as evidenced by loving, healthy relationships. So it's my purpose in this brief series of lessons to present the rational, biblical gospel of Christ in order that hearts may be genuinely transformed and you have the capacity, the ability, and the skills to form and maintain healthy, loving relationships. The gospel does produce loving, healthy relationships. But we must be first certain that we actually possess the gospel and not some merely 
some mere fabrication thereof. So that will be our first task, to look at the nature and character of the gospel, biblically, rationally, and in a way that perhaps will renew your mind. I invite you to come back for episode two of this, and we'll be uh, looking forward to our time together then. May the grace of God keep you, preserve you, and grant you great joy in fellowship with himself and with his Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.